0: You're about to listen to an episode where we talk about hunting, so you might be interested in my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. To get it, go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. From this guide, you will learn how to get a deer hunting license, obtain a firearm certificate, and get permission to hunt deer on a chosen piece of land. Everything is explained in simple language and in easy-to-follow steps. Get my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. Simply go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. This is saldors 90 I always love episodes when I get to talk to people from different parts of the world. And this is what's uh, going to happen in this episode. Our guest is a young scientist and hunter, Matt Gold. And we talk about American black bear. Matt spent some time researching black bear and wrote several papers. And that was the species that I wanted to learn the most and, and talk about it the most. Especially that uh, spring black bear hunt is one of the hunts on my bucket list. Um, but in this episode, we really not talk only about hunting. We talk about a lot about uh, ecology and biology of black bears. As well as we touch on many... Uh, social and, <laughs> so here I say, political aspects related to uh, black bears and bears in general, uh, conflict with bears or w- human-wildlife conflict. And from there we go broader into discussing conservation and ecology and the current situation in the world with uh, uh, climate change and uh, biodiversity loss and how these things are being seen and the upon in United States. Uh, we also talk about birds of prey and uh, what impact wind farms have on birds of prey. So we really started with with birds of prey this episode of the podcast and then we uh, continued with black bear uh, like we planned. And, and also we talk in this podcast about um, North American model of wildlife conservation, which is Uh, well without a doubt one of the most successful models in the world and with that um, before I leave leave you to enjoy this episode of the podcast just a quick reminder if you're watching this video on YouTube leave the thumbs up and if you're listening to audio version only please rate this podcast give it 5 stars leave the comment Uh, these sort of interactions always helping me helping the podcast and uh, yeah now without any further ado ladies and gentlemen American Black Bear and Matt Gold. Thank you for doing this. Welcome to Tommy's Outdoors.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Listen, uh I try to uh have a guest from from different countries and, and different continents, but you're I think you're only second guest from the United States. So Oh, <laughs> nice. I feel honored. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um listen, uh as of, as just just for our listeners, can you briefly tell us um you know what you do, what is your research that you do? And you know I, I, I straight up follow up with the second question is because you're obviously in your in your bio, you said I'm a researcher, I'm a, I'm a scientist, but you're also a hunter. And for for Tommy's outdoors is it's fantastic because uh, I cover outdoors activities hunting, fishing, hiking, but also environmental stuff let's say it you know conservation habitat protection rewilding if you like and and so on and so forth so it's always great to have a like marine biologist and angler in one person so so i i i'm really happy that i have you here so can you tell us you know what's your research what you do and whether your your interest as a as a hunter is it kind of connected with your research or is it kind of like a separate separate thing is not that much connected
1: Right. Uh, so, I grew up um, in I grew up in Montana, so northwest United States. I went to school in, at the University of Montana. I got a bachelor's in wildlife biology, and then I did my PhD down at New Mexico State University. So, in the Southwest uh, U.S., down in the desert. Um, and my PhD covered uh, monitoring American black bear populations in the Southwest uh, using non-invasive methods, so primarily genetic or genetic-based methods, and uh, my dissertation looked at estimating density of uh, black bears in a couple ranges, and those density estimates were used by the state's um, uh, game and fish agency uh, to set harvest limits, and then I also did some kind of more um, Oh, theory, not necessarily theoretical, but proving that you could use a statistical paradigm in, in, in a certain way based under certain conditions. And that kind of looked at habitat use. And then my last chapter was a, uh, a population and landscape genetics study. So we tried to say, okay, we have all these black bear populations in the Southwest and they're isolated in. Uh, it's called sky island mountain ranges. So mm-hmm. you have the desert across the Southwest region, and then you have these uh, mountain ranges that kind of rise up and they go, they're high elevation and you get you know kind of alpine or temperate alpine conditions depending on how high they go up. And so you have these species that are kind of isolated on little islands. And so we wanted to say, okay, let's sample all of them. Let's see who's genetically related you know, group them into genetic clusters. And then from that kind of figure out, well, we know we see some kind of gene flow going back and forth. Well, what landscape features um, are either promoting or inhibiting gene flow between those populations? Um, After I finished uh, my dissertation, I'm now a postdoc research scientist. Um, Still at New Mexico State, but I primarily work for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in the, got a lot of like subheadings here. (laughs) So Fish and Wildlife Service, but I I work within the National Raptor Program that's focused on work uh, related to raptors in the U.S. of birds of prey. And then I am doing two things. One, I'm part of uh, the National Eagle Support Team and that team is helped or tasked with providing technical assistance to the various uh, administrative regions on uh, estimating how, uh, estimating the take of bald and golden eagles relative to wind energy. So there's a few acts in the US, one's the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act, there's the Migratory Bird Act that limits or makes it illegal for you to kill uh, an eagle. But uh, unfortunately, you know things happen you know birds run into buildings but we also have wind energy and wind energy is the source of mortality for eagles and so there's a permitting process that um, uh, we try and estimate how many eagles might be uh, killed at a wind farm so a permit can be kind of uh, given or so they have to do some research that allows us to estimate that and then give them a kind of a permit that allows them to take but with some conditions that they offset those mortality somewhere else. So it's oh. you know trying to you know wind energy as we move towards non-renewables is important, but we all even non-renewable energy still has wildlife conflicts, and so it's how can we best try and minimize those? Yeah. Quick quick
0: uh, question here: How do you offset mortality?
1: Yeah. So um, obviously eagles or really anything can die a number of ways, right? And a lot of times natural mortality isn't necessarily the largest source of mortality. And so for eagle species, a huge source of mortality is electrocution um, on power lines. And so, you know, you think about the miles and miles or kilometers and kilometers of power lines on the landscape. And some of those were, you know, erected hundred years ago or 50 years ago or 70 even. Um, And so they may not be the safest uh, structures for birds. And so what can happen is um, you can try and uh, retrofit those risky type of poles into something that's, uh, has a less likelihood of electrocution. And in that sense would prevent electrocution, thus preventing mortalities of birds. So you, you identify high-risk poles and populations, you know, high-risk populations, see where they overlap and whatnot, and try and offset it that Gotcha. Way.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. So so essentially, they, they they have to do some work that will lower the mortality somewhere else, knowing that on their side the mortality will be whatever right. is estimated.
1: Right. And they the, the wind companies can do a few other things on their own. There's some Push into various. Um, well, you know they can do curtailment, which is trying to actively shut down uh, wind turbines when there when there are threats like eagles in the area. There's there's one kind of I guess popular uh, software system called Identiflight, which is tries to. It tries to instead of having people out on the landscape, it tries to have a machine on the landscape that tries to identify eagles ahead of time off in the distance so then it can you know oh an eagle's coming from this direction we have these two turbines here let's shut those down seriously wow it's it's some pretty fancy software and, and um it's starting to be implemented at different projects and they're trying to compare um you know how effective it is but that's you know it's a hard thing to kind of research because you could have on one hand, you could have reduced mortalities because of identify or maybe you have it because there just weren't a bunch of eagles in the area that here. Yeah, so it's a difficult thing to try and parse those two effects apart. So hopefully that research, um, a, a lot more research gets done on it and we can really try and see how effective that method is.
0: That's, 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 that's very interesting. And I I wasn't expecting that we're going to be talking about the Eagles and uh, effect. uh, but, but I have a follow-up question since we, since we on that. So what is like in general, and, and I know, and I need to qualify for, for everybody who's watching that or listening that we, we're, we're talking about the United States or more specifically region where, where, where you work, um, but, but maybe you you know if, you know whether there are any implication or any approximation for other places in the world when the wind energy and wind farms are built what is a overall percentage of uh, or or impact on mortality because you know if you if you look at the popular media you know on one end you have People who say like, oh, wind energy, it's bad for birds, there is huge mortality, endangered birds, raptors getting killed, and so on and so forth. Right. But then you have information like, yes, that's true, but then if you compare that with collision with cars and yeah. you know, it's a it's a fraction of a percentage point. And so from your from your experience, from your perspective, is it is it significant mortality? Or is it like really compared to other ways those birds die? It's you know the benefits of transition to renewables are far outweigh potentially you know a little bit increased mortality.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a tricky question to navigate. Um, so uh, wind energy overall, it, it's like you 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 discuss. Yes, it has mortality associated with it, but it's probably, if I'm recalling the, you know, various figures I've seen as well, it's not the leading cause of mortality, right? We have window strikes, uh, electrocutions are huge, and actually it really, in some regions, the largest source of mortality um, is just simply, and sadly to say, people that are just driving around, they'll just shoot eagles off of, you know, fence posts or off of power lines. So poaching. Uh, Yeah. So poaching is a huge source of mortality. Um, for non-eagles, you know, a lot of passerines and stuff, obviously, uh, cats, domestic cats are probably the leading cause of, or a huge cause of, uh, loss of biodiversity in general. Mm -hmm. Um, and so sometimes I think, you know, you'll see people that go, well, yeah, but, um, you know, trying to reduce mortality in all areas is is a, I guess, is a goal that we should always be pushing towards. Um, I also think that, um, you know, for some species, even relieving a little bit of mortality uh, can be the difference between them, a population growth, stable or decline. And then lastly, we, not everyone can equally affect, or reduce mortality, right? Uh, For example, another source, and this is something maybe we can get into later with hunting, another source of mortality for eagles is the ingestion of lead ammunition from gut piles and carcasses, right? And so, like, I've seen this a lot where people that are opposed to transition towards copper ammunition or non-lead ammunition go, yeah, but that ammunition doesn't kill nearly as many birds as electrocutions do. And it's like, you're right. but I can't retrofit every pole that I go out and see, right? But I can easily try at least switch from a non-lead or a lead to a non-lead ammunition. So that's something I can control. Um, for some species, like I said, this is, you know, in the grand scheme of things, uh, climate change is kind of the real thing that's going to be pushing all species towards, you know, population decline potentially. Um, but in the short term, we also need to address, we need to address the immediate sources of mortality. And there's some populations where small changes do have an effect like golden eagles or bald eagles are doing very well. They're, they're a conservation success, uh, poster child for the endangered species act, you know, uh, populations tank because of DDT once DDT was, uh, outlawed, um, raptor populations bald eagle populations skyrocketed and now bald eagles are doing very well golden eagles on the other hand are uh they're not doing as well they're they're hovering around that area where you know they could be starting to trend downwards potentially so we we need to um, we need to address you know anything we can and then the last piece that i think sometimes i've had a lot of lastlys here but uh (laughs) Another piece that is often overlooked is that sometimes uh, things have to be addressed because it's the law to do so. Like, we could just completely ignore, uh, you know, the killing of eagles regardless of the source of mortality, but in the U.S. that is illegal, therefore, you know, the the federal agency that's in charge of managing them could be brought to court by another group saying hey you're not upholding your duty to manage wildlife which has been entrusted to you by the public and and that comes through you know the bald and golden eagle protection act as well as the migratory bird act.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. No, it's 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 cool that you mentioned the lead ammunition because that's also something I, I covered uh, in in length in a in a podcast in a number of uh, of episodes. Just one last uh, last question on the on, on the Eagles because you know I always try to draw parallels into what is happening in you know uh, Ireland, uh, United Kingdom, or broadly in in, in Europe, and what what. It, you know, drew my attention is the illegal uh, persecution of birds of prey, which is a it's a big problem in, for example, the United Kingdom, also in Ireland. And you mentioned that the poaching of the people just going and shooting eagles. Like, is there a reason? Is there a reason? So, in other words, is this driven by um, some, let's say, interests like uh, you know managing other wildlife or or protecting other sheep or something or is it just a uh, you know stupidity let's say people just wanted yeah look at that i shot uh up.
1: yeah a little bit of a, a little bit of b um golden eagles do predate or prey upon uh sheep quite a bit especially lambs there's a famous famous study that occurred in montana where wildlife services it's an agency that helps try and reduce uh conflict between wildlife and livestock either through non-lethal or lethal methods and um, they're having a lot of issues with golden eagles killing lambs there and so they were either killing well I don't I can't remember the study happened in the or this was like 70s or 80s somewhere in there Um, and so they were removing eagles whether that was lethal or non-lethal I can't remember and what they found out is it is that's actually not doing anything because all, most of the eagles were migrating through during winter or during the spring heading north. And so there was just, you know, new eagles filling coming in. How much that is, you know, cause of mortality with ranching, I'm not sure. But I think a huge part of it also is just kind of, yeah, people being stupid and just shooting birds because they can shoot a bird. I know of one such story back home. One person was uh, finally arrested because they would just be driving around the valley, just shooting hawks off the of fence posts for no reason other than they just, you know, they could. So, which is really hard to hear.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, good. They <laughs> get arrested eventually. That's a good, yeah. I guess a good good part of that story. Okay. Listen. Um. So I just want to go back to where where we started. Um so how how are how your 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 hunting your your hunting interest ties like does it to so various question like does it tie in any way to your work uh, other than like a you know general foundation of obviously you're interested in the wildlife, you're interested in the natural environment, and this is like one of the things that is on that foundation, or is, is it like more more connection uh for you yeah. to the two?
1: Uh, it's both. It's definitely both. Um, I I grew up hunting, backpacking, fishing since I was you know little. That's kind of what I always did. That's what uh, helped develop my interest in wildlife. Um, but in the U.S., as you well to then briefly talk, you know, pro- professionally, yeah, some of my research does interest me, or I am interested in conducting research because of the hunting, and. Uh, a lot of that has to do with in the U.S., as you might, might be familiar with, but if listeners aren't, um, it's the North American model of wildlife conservation, where in the U.S. they're tied hand in hand, right? Um, and so our, our, our state wildlife agencies are all funded by the tags and licenses purchased by the public to hunt and fish. And so, you know, we're not getting, or our state agencies aren't getting tax dollars. Um, Their their whole operation is being funded by licenses, hunting and fishing license sales. Yeah, it's it's
0: a Pittman Robertson Act, if I remember correctly. That's
1: separate now. Yeah. So the the yeah, so there's there's a couple things. Your first is your all license hunting and license hunting and fishing licenses. All that money goes back into the state agency and runs runs it. And then you have an excise tax on uh, all hunting-related equipment, so firearms, um, ammunition. Uh, There's some other things, but usually firearms and ammunition is kind of the big big one that falls into it. And yeah, that, that falls with the Pitt and Robertson Act. Um, and so that money is collected by the fed- the federal agency and then gets distributed to the state and then this that money can only be used for wildlife conservation habitat management so it can't be those coffers can't be rated by the state legislature to try and shore up debts in different areas uh-huh. um and then we also have the dingle uh johnson act And the Dingle Johnson is the same thing as hunting, but it has to do with like fishing. So it's uh, excise tax on like uh, boat fuel um, or petrol and various other kind of water fishing related equipment. And that's the same thing. Those money then get distributed uh, to the states. So it's kind of there's there's multiple sources of funding. But, yeah, it all comes from hunting and fishing dollars or license sales and then uh, small taxes placed on hunting and fishing related uh, equipment. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No. And and again, you know, this is something that, that I, I, we talk in the podcast many times that, you know, American model of wildlife conservation is probably as good as it gets. It's probably the best in the world in, in, in sense of, you know, how to fund and how, how, you know, get money from people who are on the one hand interested, you know, being channeled into wildlife conservation and, and so on. Okay, listen. What? So let's switch the gears now uh, a little bit and let's talk about black bears because I'm just I'm just I'm just waiting to talk about obviously uh, bears is like probably my my one of my favorite terrestrial you know predatory mammals and um, uh, I even you know obviously black bear is specific to America. Um, you know, I, I even uh, was uh, back in, in in Poland and in Ukraine to to photograph and observe the, the brown bears. Um, but the black bear is a little bit different. So, can you um, explain to us and to me, it, you know, like what is what is a life history of that animal? How it differs from 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 uh, brown bears and you know, like all 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 those basic things about black bear
1: yeah for sure Uh, so uh, the black bear is one of oh one two three four five six seven eight eight species of bear in the world um the american black bear uh, evolutionarily is one of the more recent ones so they bears in general are the ursidae family so ursids um, radiated from, uh, Asia over into North America. And so the, the American black bear split from the Asiatic black bear at some point coming over to the, to North America. And then from there, from the American, the, the grizzly and the polar bear split off and then the polar and grizzly bear split off. Oh. So the polar bear is actually the, the evolutionarily the, the youngest, Bear species, oh. um, and the American black bear is um, unlike, I guess, the polar bear, but like most bears, it's is it's, a, it's uh, highly omnivorous. So most of its food is going to be coming from non-meat um, based food sources. So primarily, the the diet of a bear kind of, you know, they're a bear is dictated by its its stomach and its nose. And so what it eat is going to be, what it eats is kind of going to be highly dependent on the availability of food at that time. So they're going to get out of the den um, from hibernating. You know, they've spent anywhere from four to seven months just sleeping, not eating, not urinating, not defecating. Um, and they're going to lose anywhere from 20 to 40% of their body weight. Um, and so when they come out of the den, they're going to be super hungry. But the only thing that's going to be available is, is probably either green grass or if they can find uh, carrion, you know, winter kill um, carcasses. And so the primary, primarily will start off eating grass and then they'll start uh, shifting towards various uh, berry plants, berry producing plants come summer into the fall and then once they get to late summer to early fall then they start switching in some areas it depends on the species present uh they switch to hard mass so like acorns um they'll switch over to acorns they'll also switch over to uh, like in the southwest they'll switch over to juniper berries and then get fat enough then they go back into the den and sleep for another four to seven months
0: Right, right, yeah, and that's that's interesting because, uh, you know, like uh, I had this conversation some time ago. Like in Europe, there's more bears than wolves, and and uh, you know, like oh, like how how does it happen? Like a bear is this big animal? It's like, yes, but bear can, like you said, eat grass or or some other stuff. Right, why why wolf eats meat? Period. There's no. Other, although I saw a footage recently, uh, uh, wolves eating uh, berries as well. But I, it's just like a, you know, I guess. Yeah, biological. it's not the
1: primary. Yeah, you you have to think. You know, as you go up the uh, food chain, you lose energy as you go because you're not you're not uh, perfect or 100 efficient in converting or using all the energy in the food source below you, right? So you have the sun, and you get all this plant matter, and that goes into a smaller subset of ungulates or herbivores, and then that goes to a smaller set of omnivores, smaller set of carnivores, or, you know, something with that effect, Um, so yeah, so you're not having a a, a 100% transfer or efficient transfer of energy from one trophic level to the next, and so, thus, with bears, they can use more food sources um, so there's more there for them, uh, depending on you know their life history, you know they can maybe sustain higher higher abundant populations than something like a pure hyper carnivore like a mountain lion or a tiger or something like that.
0: Right, right, right. And and listen, so your your uh, your research was related to black bear distribution. I, uh, I mean, like, and can you can you can you explain like can you tell us like how how does it how does it look like? I even uh, uh, heaven knows that you were working on occupancy models.
1: Oh yeah, um, yes. Yeah, so uh, the distribution of black bears. Well, <laughs> so the American black bear is kind of it's a forest obligate. Uh, so getting back a little bit to to life history uh, it's a forest obligate. So the, the black bear evolved in North America, you know, it continued to evolve during the Pleistocene, uh, it, along with, you know, some of the other kind of crazy bears at that time, like the short faced bear, the North American spectacled bear, um, as well as, as you know, the grizzly. So quick side note in the world, we have the Brown bear In North America, we have a certain, we have a subspecies of the brown bear, which we term the grizzly bear. So they're the same bear; it's just a different subspecies. Uh, so they also had the grizzly bear, and the grizzly bear evolved on the the plains of or the open, wide open country. And this kind of shows the behavior of grizzly versus a, a black bear as well. And so the way that or the niche that the black bear filled. To survive competing against these other three bears was to be highly specialized in the forest, and so they uh, have shorter claws, so maybe a inch and a half long claw uh, that allows them to climb trees. Versus a grizzly bear is going to be two to four inches long, and the grizzly bear is going to use that their claws as like a garden rake or a garden tool or implement, so they can dig up tubers and roots and flip over rocks and stuff like that pretty easily. The other interesting thing is because black bears, you know, they're probably the smaller species. They, they ran away or um, when they were uh, confronted or got into a situation with another bear. And so for example, in North America, you'll often hear people say, Oh yeah, black bears are just big, wimps they'll just, you know, <laughs> run away from you. They're more scared of you than you are of them, which there's some interesting insight. If there's some if you ever get involved with a grizzly or black bear, depending on what they can do, there's some scary stuff. Well, black bears, yeah, they did flee. And so if you do see one, they often do run away. And grizzlies, since they in they could climb a tree, and when the grizzlies, because it was out in the you know, the plains, there weren't trees to climb up, their reaction was to like attack you, charge you, maul you real quick, and then run away. Right. And so that's why they kind of get that that reputation. They have that behavior of being uh you know very aggressive and you don't want to mess with the grizzly, which you don't. They're massive animals. Um but uh yeah it's 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 interesting how their evolutionary history uh has led to kind of the reputation today.
0: I I even I even heard somewhere that when that is there is this saying I think that with you know play dead when the grizzly and when the blackbird right whatever whatever that is yeah and 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 the and the reason for that is uh, I don't remember where what I read it or someone told me is like 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 you said the the grizzly attacks you. But really doesn't want to eat you it just it is just a its way of neutralizing threat right so so when you play dead, it kind of doesn't have a threat anymore and will leave you while black bear when where black bear is attacking you, then it seizes you as a food, so yeah. you have no choice, and you have to yeah. fight back even because like, like i say they usually just just back off, but if they're not backing off then they're actually trying to predate on you, and that's why you you're just playing that don't not gonna work.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. So grizzlies, they see a threat, they try and maul it, neutralize the threat. If you're still moving or messing with them, then yeah, they they might maul you again. Um, black bears, yeah, they tend to fl- they tend to run away, but there have been instances where people hiking have had black bears kind of keep circling them, and that's sort of this predatory behavior. Um, and in that case, yeah, the, the black bear is, is looking at you as a potential food source. And so it's trying to, you know, predate or, you know, kill you. And so in that case, yeah, you, you may want to fight or you probably want to fight, grab try and find a big stick or rock or something and be, be ready for that. So yeah, that's a, it is a common saying, although, um, my solution for either is to carry bear spray with me, no matter what.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Are you are you uh, often hunting in the in the bear country?
1: Yeah. Yes. Uh, early. So yeah, uh, archery. So in the U.S. Well, I mean, a lot of places, I and mean, it depends on where you're at in the U.S. But for example, in Montana, the or in the U.S. in general, if you're hunting elk, or which I guess not European elk, American elk. Um, so not red deer. I think is the
0: yeah. Like red deer is red deer is a kind of similar but different species than elk.
1: Yeah. So the I think the it's, red is smaller, service, has a different antlers a little bit. Yep. But service then service laphis. Yes. And service canadensis is is what ours is.
0: Yeah. Here. But then to to make things even more complex, in the countries like for example Norway,
1: they oh, a it a moose. Yeah calling a
0: a elk it was like yeah that's (laughs) what i was
1: thinking yeah so the the american elk the one that's a light brown body a dark chocolate neck yeah uh their mating season occurs in late august and into october with september being the kind of the, the peak peak rut um and so you can that's a popular time for archery season because you can call in elk you can bugle you can cow call and you can call males in um. so you have these really cool interactions of them, you know, bugling. Um, and archery obviously has a less effective distance than than you would with a rifle. Well, there have been a uh, lot, there have been cases, and it's, it's definitely a concern in, in areas of grizzly country. You have to be extremely careful with grizzly bears trying to take those carcasses from hunters. Um, it's uh, bears will often, it's called um. Kleptoparasitism, where bears will steal the kills from other carnivores. And it happens a lot with bears and mountain lions. A blackbird will steal a kill that a mountain lion made. Um, and so it's kind of a similar thing. If a a grizzly will hear a gunshot, or if they smell a carcass, they'll go to that area, they'll find the carcass, and they'll either, you know, depending on how fast this occurs push the hunter off or oftentimes you butcher the animal and you are packing it out and you have to make multiple trips or you have to wait overnight and they'll come back and they'll find that carcass and then they'll sit on it and they'll try and you know keep it and and so yeah it's it's uh it's definitely a concern when you're when you're hunting in grizzly country that is a huge concern uh hunting in black bear country country again it's Kind of has to do with, you know, their behavior. Uh, they're not as aggressive. Um, they are pretty scared of folks. Um, and so people don't, it's not nearly as a concern, but there is concern that uh, that a black bear or a coyote or a wolf, depending on where you're at, could scavenge the, the carcass. And so oftentimes what you'll do if you are in heavy bear country, you might, uh, cut it up, put it in bags, and then string it up into a tree uh, high enough for, so they can't get it. Um, and then you'll, if you have to come back the next day, uh, what we do is uh, we'll try and make sure we can approach the carcass from a place that allows us to kind of see it from a distance. We'll make a bunch of noise, and we'll try and, you know, look ahead to make sure there's, you know, nothing on the carcass when we get back.
0: Right, right. It's interesting because I thought it is mainly situation when you actually leave the carcass when the bear tries to uh, climb it. But you're say that they're I actually actively can just go in and, and try to Yeah. Oh yeah, and they're I smart animals, shown... so I guess they, they probably they know are... that when they when they hear the gunshots it's like, oh dinner.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that's I I uh I think it's been shown in a study, but don't quote me on that. But I think they've at least uh, looked at uh hunters given hunters GPS units and then having collared bears and, and have seen that uh, during hunting season grizzlies will know that a gunshot means a food source on the landscape and they will kind of go towards that area because you know there's a five six seven hundred pound or a, you know a thousand kilo animal on the ground and there's guts, there's organs, there's meat, there's, there's a lot of calories, especially with it being the fall. Um, You know, they're trying to, they're in this mode. So bears, when they're feeding, when they get into the fall, they go into a, a feeding state called hyperphagia where they, you know, they used to be more active in dawn and dusk and they, have their normal home ranges and they're kind of feeding and and what, when they go into hyperphagia, they kind of increase their activity levels and they will just go crazy, just eating nonstop and they'll increase their, you know, calories from, I think it's something like six or 8,000 calories a day to 15 to 20,000 calories a day. Whoa! Yeah. And so when it gets to be that fall time and they're, you know, those last few months can kind of be the, you know, make it or break it as to whether or not they make it through the, the fall or even they reproduce. That's another thing we can talk about. Um, so they can get pretty aggressive when they're trying to, you know, either steal or defend a kill.
0: Wow, wow. And, and is, is there, so in some states, or I don't know, you, you can, this is actually question. Uh, in how many states you can you can hunt bears? Black bears, brown bears, because in some you can, some you can't. And I know that there's even some uh, controversy, like usual, in those things about some jurisdictions. I even read somewhere that some uh, one of the jurisdictions kind of back off from the they plan to ban black bear hunting, but then they didn't. Uh, and then some somewhere else it, it is it is banned. So can can you can you can yeah. explain to us that situation?
1: Um, Grizzlies—that's uh, the easiest one to explain. Uh, you can you can hunt grizzly bears in Alaska. They're not considered endangered there, um, but in the U.S. you cannot hunt grizzlies anywhere. They are still uh, or I guess the Ooh, since I've, the, the yellow, so there are Yellowstone Continental Cabinet, uh, I think there's five or six recovery zones for grizzly bears in the U.S. And I think grizzlies in the, um, oops, sorry, um, one of the larger units, it's called the Northern Continental Divide Ecosystem. It's north West Montana, Canadian border, I believe they've been delisted from the Endangered Species Act, whereas the Yellowstone uh, area, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, those grizzlies in that recovery area have not been, uh, have not been delisted. And then there's no grizzlies in, or functionally no grizzlies in uh, recovery area in Washington and in a recovery area in central Idaho. And then the last, two recovery areas in Northern Idaho and Northwest Montana are small and those bears are still endangered. Um, so the recent push now is to try and get the bears from the, the Yellowstone uh, ecosystem to have them delisted. And so the, the state agencies in Idaho, Montana and Wyoming, if, if those bears do get delisted, they are considering having hunting seasons uh, for them it would be a you know only a few individuals each year and um, you know part of that is some one of the things i'm interested in with wildlife and hunting is is trying to provide this opportunity of having harvest of, of a species while still uh, a, a sustainable harvest where you still have populations into the future
0: yeah and this is kind of important to 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 stress especially for 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 st- You know, significant portion of of my listeners that when we talk about delisting, let's say, black uh, brown bears and and allowing hunting, it is, like you said, very controlled hunting, very controlled number of uh, animals in this, I presume, in a very specific time of the year. Yeah, because quite often when you when you say like oh they you can hunt people in their head, have is like oh now there's a bunch of people, yep. you know, with with guns shooting everything that that moves. So that that still is yeah. Really-
1: and I think that's that's something you know, uh, in wildlife you you kind of discuss different types of animals and you have your ecosystem engineers like like beavers. You know, they change the ecosystem and they provide all these benefits. You have umbrella species that they require such a large area or diverse set of diverse habitat composition that conserving them serves as an umbrella for everything underneath it. Um, And then you have also these charismatic species, and these are often your cute and cuddly uh, species that that demand or gain a ton of attention from the public. And so, you might think of things like sea otters or wolves, grizzly bears, um, eagles, you know, bald eagles are very popular, golden eagles. And so, that often, you know, people, because they like them so much, they they don't uh, like seeing them being harvested through hunting or seeing them hunted at all. But oftentimes, you know, you'll have a lot of, a lot of other species that either are hunted and there's no issue with them. Like you can hunt deer, elk, moose, pronghorn, uh, you know, tons of different birds, including, you know, ducks and geese and pheasants and quail. Um, and then there's other animals that, you know, don't have a actual season on them for a lot of places. Um, and so, yeah, it's, I guess the thing to rem- I'd like to point out is that you know in the U.S. part of the North American wildlife model conservation is that these populations are managed using the best available science, and so our agencies are trying to you know manage those populations using science. For example, like my first chapter of my dissertation, you know they they had a, a study done in the '90s that estimated. Uh, density of of bears in mountain ranges. They use those to set heart's limits. Um, And then after, you know, 10 years or so, they go, you know what, we should probably get a new uh, fresh look at these populations to see how they're doing. Let's start a study. And so they funded my study. And then, you know, the nice thing is, is they then, you know, allowed us to act independently. And So we went out and collected these data. You know, we're not for, for us, we weren't interested in how this affects the harvest limit. We don't care if it means less or more or stays the same. We just want to provide high-quality science that provides the management agency with the information they need to then manage population. And so, yeah, my first chapter, I, I published it. Uh, those estimates went to the Game and Fish Agency. They pre- presented it to the State Game Commission, who approves the laws recommended by the state agency, and that got implemented and that affected, you know, how many bears could be harvested. It, it increased in some areas and decreased in other areas or stayed the same. Right. Yeah.
0: So great, 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 great work. <laughs> this is, this is, I guess, the, the chief thing that is missing, I feel, in a lot of uh, implementations, like where, where I live, this, is the the lack of science and the lack of knowledge, you know, and, and it always breaks me up when I hear those conversations about, you know, how, you know, whether we should uh, call budgers or whether we should kill mm-hmm. deer or whatever. And you know, the or, or or even other subjects that I that I covered um, quite a lot in the podcast is the conflict with seals, where some groups are calling for seal call and some, you know, they they're protected. And for me, is after like is always first question is like how many do we have? What is the population? What is the population dynamics? And unfortunately, uh, uh, usually the answer is like we don't know. We don't know how many. And and, and this is this is the this is a big problem. Um, listen. So let's go back for for a second uh, still to black bears. So how the black bears are doing overall?
1: They're doing great. Um, black bears are expanding. So you know. They're expanding into areas that they were extirpated from with European uh, colonization. Um, and so, you know, they they live in forests. So essentially where you have forest is where you more than likely have black bears. Uh, in North America, the northern in Canada, Alaska, that whole northern section boreal forest, that all has black bears. Uh, in the west, we more or less have black bears in all, yeah, all states have black bears, California, Idaho, Washington, Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, Wyoming, we have black bears everywhere. Uh, and then back east, we have black bears in the northeast. Um, the southeast is a little bit different. There's so many pop, so many people there that it's, you know, we have populations that are isolated, um, some are expanding. Um, I, I would guess that's kind of the con- area of conservation, or not area of conservation, the area where you still worry a little bit about black bears. It's probably in that southeast corner of the United States, and that's because they were extirpated, and now it's black bears recolonizing rather than re- being reintroduced. Um, but you do have bears in like the Washita Mountains of Oklahoma and Arkansas. Uh, you have them in Georgia and Florida, Louisiana, East Texas, Kentucky, Tennessee. So black bears are doing really well in North America. Mm.
0: Listen, and so we talked a little bit about encounters with bears when you are actually out hunting, right? But then that's what you expect. You're out there. You're hunting. You're, you know, kind of that's that, that's that's place where bear lives. Is there much of the conflict with bears human wildlife conflict with with bears whether um, with farming interests or or you know I think that everybody saw those pictures, you know black bear coming to you know scavenge on the trash can and and stuff mm-hmm. like that is is this a um, so I suppose I have a two questions like is this a problem is this a significant problem? That is maybe growing, maybe like what what what's happened uh because i I heard about certain areas where it's like a lot of black bears really there's this this is a huge population, and then whether hunting is perceived as a way of mitigating that conflict or there are other ways because it, you know like I think for 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 you and for people living in America this is quite quite obvious through all the stuff that we discussed the, you know how hunters and hunting interests feeding into conservation and and population control in in some in some ways while again where where I sit, it's always you know I'm always disappointed where you talk about management of the population or call or something. And this is done by actually taking money you know from taxpayers and paying, you know, service or sharpshooters or whoever who goes and it's like, why you do this? You can, you know, you can you have a lot of people who would like to do this and would pay for the privilege to do that. And then you always have this argument, oh yeah, but they're doing that for fun. That's wrong. Right. It's like uh, If right? Is it this question, like, if they were hating doing that, that, would that then be better? You know, like, is it so, so, how, how, how that situation look like, especially in the perspective of, 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 black bear?
1: Um, yeah. Um, conflict's a huge issue with black bears. Uh, you have it for any given reason. You have black bears that come into towns and, they know when the they know when the garbage pickup schedule is, and they will <laughs> just hit. like
0: the grizzly know where the shot goes off. Yep. These guys know where the tr-
1: <laughs> they do. They they know when garbage cans are put out. You know certain nights, and they'll go hit those neighborhoods. Uh, they'll they'll hit uh, bird feeders, chicken coops, uh, barbecue, pet food that's left outside. Uh, people might have a, a fruit tree in their yard. And so there's a lot of measures to try and reduce those sources of conflict. So like where I went to school, we had programs to go out and pick fruit trees um, in people's yards. And then we would, it was called the great Bear foundation. And we would press the apples into cider and then sell it, sell the cider for, or give the cider away and, or, you know, use it to raise funds and stuff like that. Uh, Tell people to bring in their, their, stuff at night or no bird seed during the summer, just keep it during the winter. Um, and then agricultural wise, yeah, you do have some conflicts. You have bears that'll get into a chicken coop. Um, and in some parts of the country you have actually with, uh, with tree production, with tree farms, you'll have bears that'll go and they will, you know, destroy trees cause they're trying to eat that, the camber, um, in the tree and they'll tear them up. And so, you know, if you have a private company that owns, a, you know, land to try and log for lumber, that can be a huge, you know, loss of money for the company. Um, and so wildlife agencies here, we have entire biologists dedicated to trying to reduce human conflict. And usually, with you know, the efforts are focused on uh, the humans because they're the ones that you often cause it or the ones that can help fix it. Um, you know, they're the ones that can put garbage cans in the garage or when they're out camping, string their food up in a tree rather than keeping it in their tent or or in their car, you know, stuff like that. Um, and from there, you know, there's a few things that when you do have conflicts that are done, uh, we have sometimes, uh, bears are, you know, there's like a three strike rule where. If they'll get picked up once, put an ear tag in them, and they might move them, you know, 100 miles away in a different forest or something like that. And if they get in trouble three times, then the bear will be ultimately killed. Uh, That's usually not as popular with the public. But a lot of the research has shown that, um, you know, kind of once there's a saying, a fed bear is a dead bear that once they realize that they can, they have easy sources of food by going in and hitting garbage and bird seed, then why would you do anything else when your entire, you know, drive as a, as an animal is to get as fat as possible so you can live through the winter. And so some of the research has shown that these bears, when you re, when you translocate them, you relocate them to new areas, they just go right back to where they came from They go to new area and get trouble. Or it's kind of like me you know, uh, picking you up, blindfolding you, putting you to sleep in Ireland, and then bringing you here to the US and just dropping you into a random city and say, okay, you need to go figure out where you can get food, where you can safely sleep, where you can, you know, plus you have to deal with uh, dangerous people who are already living there and don't like you. And so that's the kind of same thing with bears, you know, they're, they are, they're not as territorial as say, like, Uh, wolves are, you know, or hard boundary, here's one pack, here's the other pack. They do overlap, but they don't like to be around each other. And so, you do have mortality sources from there if you dump a bear in a random area and they don't have a home range already set up. Um, So, hunting can serve as a tool and it does serve as a tool in some areas because a lot of times, you know, how many animals we want is either dictated by Do we believe the habitat can handle it or is it socially acceptable, right? You know, people might like to have black bears, but they may not want to have so many black bears where, you know, it's the the whole town has them all over the place. And so you can use hunting as a tool to try and keep populations at a certain level to where they, people find it socially acceptable to have that many because there's not so many where they're getting in trouble or they're, you know, threatened or or, or some factor. Uh, now, one aspect that I think is ignored is that you could, with bears, you know, you can keep them at a certain population level um, with hunting and may have no issues or they could be at high population levels and have no, no issues with the public with conflict. Uh, what happens though, is when the bears food source. So oftentimes in years of drought, you won't have berries produced or that many berries or not enough acorns and bears produce, prefer their natural foods. Well, when you have droughts, you have uh, failure in these different soft and hard massed crops bears will move out of those areas that are in the drought and they will, you know, start traveling wider range to try and look for food. And that's where we say the most conflict is because now they're going into town trying to look for food and people have watered yards and lawns that might have, you know, ornamentals that have food. They have garbage cans, they have bird seed, they have pet food. the you know there's there's they might have fruit trees they have gardens they have chicken coops, um, and so it it acts as an, you know they have no food out in the out in the forest and now there's food in the city, well they're going to start heading down into it and that's where even if you have a low abundance or a high abundance population you're going to have conflict in those those instances. Right, right,
0: right. Um, Isn't uh, overall how would you how would, would you say that hunting has like a big problem with um, public perception and it's kind of is in a in a in a decline or you know you see maybe more education is needed in terms of you know how how that feeds into the You know, wildlife conservation, and and, you know, because in general, which I think it's a good trend that people start to be more aware of the environment, people start to be more aware of the climate change, people start to be more aware of the biodiversity loss, etc. etc. So these are good things, and I think that 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 you know even pressurizes policymakers on you know making correct moves but at the same time intentional or or non-intentional casualty is hunting where it is more perceived as a threat to biodiversity and, and wildlife and so on rather than an element that goes hand in hand and similarly and i even wrote a blog about it and similarly hunters quite often are perceived not as an allies in work on protecting habitats and conservation and so on they're they're by general probably they perceived as um you know enemies of animals Oh, they want to kill all the animals how like I just i'm just curious about your 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 comments and, and especially from the from the perspective of United States where you live how, how does it look for you
1: yeah um a lot of things related to that. I think you know one of the things to remember is, is sure. There's always a few people in there that don't, don't represent the the views of, of the majority of, of, of a group or something. And I think with hunters, hunters, you know, they don't necessarily like, for example, be, I don't enjoy, or I don't find killing an animal fun, right? That's not, when I go hunting, the shot is the last, is the last thing on my list of why I like, I like to go hunting. I like to go hunting because I get to explore new areas, new landscapes. Um, I get to see things that I never do, just sticking on a trail or only going in the nice times of the year. I get to interact with wildlife. I have to learn the, you know, the behavior and the ecology of a species. Um, You know, I have to try and uh, think like, a predator does oftentimes, like, well, how can I camouflage myself or, you know, how can I trick this animal into not knowing I'm here? And, you know, and I also view myself as being part of the ecosystem. I think that's, that's another thing is a lot of times folks view humans as being dirty, as being separate from animals. You know, we should, we should be in our city, animals should be outside of the city and that's it. We, we need to have this barrier of us and them. And I very much don't view that. I feel, I view that as we are all connected in one, and it, you know, in part of that kind of drives why I care about wildlife. You know, I see them as intrinsically valuable just because I like to see them. I like knowing they're out there, but I also know they have, you know, uses for a number of things, whether that's I can get my own on my own meat, you know, I, uh, you know, for example, I don't buy beef anymore, mainly just because I can, I harvest all my meat. You know, I can shoot an elk, I can shoot a deer in New Mexico. We have orcs. I harvested an orcs, you know, a a, a couple of years ago. And so I like knowing where I can get my meat. And I know that I, you know, when I eat a steak or cook something, I remember those, I had those memories from that hunt, and every time I look at it, I go back to, like, everything that occurred up until the point of, of me getting, or even after, like, some crazy stuff has happened when I'm packing the elk, or the deer, or whatever, on my back, myself, in the middle of the dark, right, um, some of the best friendships I've had have been made over those hunts, um, so in that sense, I think that's maybe, a. a a difference that folks don't maybe know about when it comes to hunting is that I think hunters very much value, they value all of this and so they inherently value the animal for providing those opportunities. Um, And then the other thing is, you know, hunters don't always want to kill everything that does, you know, we have seen that in the past with market hunting. and that's kind of what drove the North American model of conservation. We said, "Hey, animals shouldn't be used for in in markets. So you can't shoot an elk and then go sell that meat." I know in in some places, I've met a, a researcher from Sweden where he has harvested you know a number of moose and they sell moose meat every year, which is really interesting to hear but from a north american perspective it's kind of like wait what did you just say you can sell your moose meat
0: yeah uh, and same, same thing same, same thing here you know you have you have the whole these these game processors where you actually hunt and just just you know drop the carcass in the game processor and then it uh you know there was a lot of like a press releases like because of a pandemic and the Less hunting opportunity and so on. How the venison prices were affected and, and stuff oh, that's like crazy. that. Yeah, yeah. So
1: here, uh, pandemic wise, it uh, hunting and fishing just skyrocketed. The number of licenses sold, um, you know, just spiked because it was the one thing that everyone could do. They could go out and they could fish and they could hunt. And and you know, part of that is that. In the U.S. with that model, the, the wildlife is owned by the public. And so, you know, everyone has the sense of, of, I guess, uh, not ownership, but they responsibility because they are a part of that. Um, and so, yeah, it, with hunting, it, it is, that is one of, the, I guess, the negative things about the North American model is that since it is based off hunter hunting ain't you know, hunt, hunting licenses and fishing license sales. Uh, we have seen drops or a drop in, you know, funding because of that. The number of hunters is dropping and that's a huge thing. And there's been some big talks about trying to do, you know, a similar tax. We, ca- we call it the backpack tax, yeah. the, RE, the REI tax. Well, you know, we have an excise tax on hunting and fishing equipment. What about all the non- consumptive users, I guess is what they call them. So people that go birdwatching or photography or hiking or whatever, why don't we put a small tax on those equipment to, to help fund wildlife conservation as well? Because, you know, a lot of people say, you know, you guys just manage wildlife for hunters and that's all you do. And the hunters will say, yeah, but we're the ones that are putting up the money for this kind of thing. So, um, so it's interesting. That's that's been shot down. I guess pun intended. That's been shot down uh, quite a bit. The backpack tax has not been enacted. Um,
0: yeah. So this is this is good. This is this is interesting because I was um, probably almost a year ago at this point was talking about trophy hunting in in Africa and how trophy hunting. Ooh, yeah. And, <laughs> right. And and I was I was talking with a with a scientist. And for the first time, he 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 gave me good. So he said, like, I think we should transition that conservation model in Africa away from trophy hunting as quickly as possible. And obviously, I was expecting to, you know, the usual because you shouldn't, and you know, these animals and so on. And and there was not nothing like he said because the number of hunters are dropping. And that's, that's simply the funding will dry out. And yeah, like to me, that was like, a, for the first time, the, the best argument why it makes sense to transition away from hunting because this is providing. So, you know, obviously, me being me, I said like, well, why don't we promote hunting and get more hunters so we can sustain the conservation model? But uh, it's interesting that you kind of mentioned the same thing.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think the pandemic has really shown that we can't do one or the other. Uh, there's some folks uh, that I follow on Twitter that they are huge in the African Trophy Hunt team uh, conversation, uh, Amy Dickman and Adam Hart. They're actually UK-based, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, goes... so I think
0: that that was Adam Hart uh, who, who made that argument uh, oh, on, on my podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had him twice. So that was like, for the first time, it was like, oh, that is a good yeah, argument then, why we should transition. But
1: now we see with with the pandemic, well, photo tur- you, people couldn't travel. And so photo tourism tanked because people weren't allowed to go. And so it's kind of, you know, putting your eggs all in one basket type of thing. Like maybe we should have a diverse portfolio of, of ways we use to fund habitat or wildlife conservation. And so in the US, you know, because we are heavily based on, those license cells. we have this program called the 3R initiative, and that is the is to promote the recruitment, retention, and reactivation of hunters. And, you know, oftentimes it was promoted towards trying to get more kids into hunting because, you know, the hunting community is just getting older and wider. Uh, so, let's get a diverse set of hunters across the nation. Well, then what the hard part about recruiting kids into something like this is um, they don't necessarily make all the decisions as to what hobbies they can or can't do. Right. You have to also convince the parent and you have to convince the parent to buy them equipment, take them out or have a mentor, take them out to hunt. And so there's also which, you know, with this, shift towards trying to be more conscientious about where your food is reduce your carbon footprint there's a shift towards you kind of local you know supporting local farmers growing your own food and so actually a big part of this initiative has actually been trying to identify people that are 20 to 40 years old that are they have disposable income they are you know interested in trying to acquire food that is uh you know that is ethically sourced, that is, you know, free of various um, chemicals, whether it's, you know, hormones or antibiotics or whatnot, um, as well as trying to reduce your carbon footprint. So if you can avoid getting a cow shipped from Argentina, and instead you can go 20 minutes out to your local forest and harvest a deer, then why wouldn't you do that? And so that's been a huge push in the U.S. as well. And it's one that I really like to see because that's something I've, I love being a hunter and angler is that, for example, right now, you know, I have oryx meat, um, or Gemsbach meat from the animal I harvested in New Mexico. I have a deer that I harvested back home in Montana. I have bluegill and perch fish that my, uh, you know, significant other, and I just went out and caught ice fishing a couple of weekends ago, you know, in, in, we have, you know, there's ramps or wild onion or huckleberries or all these things that we go out and pick on our own and incorporate into our food. And it's just really cool trying to pair local meat and local vegetables and you get kind of more interested. And I feel like you become much more of a naturalist in that sense,
0: because now you're
1: walking out and you're thinking like, oh, there's some ramps. I could pick those. It's like a garlicky spinach almost. And Like, oh, here's huckleberries. I can make a pie with that. And and so I, that's uh, one aspect that, you know, I guess non-hunting community doesn't get to experience. It's just that local connection or that personal connection you have with your food Um, in that when I make a dinner, I I know exactly where this came from. I can tell you what it was eating, Um, you know, and I can also tell you that I did not, that this animal wasn't harvested lightly you know i if i waited until there was a shot that a, a shot was provided that could mean a, a quick ethical kill um stuff like that and so hunting is much more than just the kill it's everything else leading up to the kill and after the kill i mean i'm still thinking about that meat a year later after it was you know harvested yeah
0: I think that every hunter who listens to that knows exactly what you're talking about because this is exactly uh, exactly it. Listen, Matt, um we're gonna be wrapping this thing up. Um, I just wanna ask you one one last question. You know, with everything that's going on with you know natural environment, with nature, with climate change, biodiversity laws, you know sixth extinction, et cetera, et cetera. How do you see? How do you think this this will play out over next you know fifty hundred years? Are we you know delaying the inevitable? Are we is there only way of you know saving wildlife and wild places is kind of to scale back our human activities or perhaps innovation? uh is the is the way forward how 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 do you how do you see this playing out
1: um on the human side i think yeah we i think it's we need to embrace innovation that helps reduce our our footprint the number of resources we use um you know, everything associated with that. But we also, those things can only do such a good job or can only perform to such a, you know, high quality or such a level. It's it's inevitable, and I think it's been shown in a in number of papers that we as humans also need to tr- start adjusting our lifestyles in a way. You know, maybe we do need to focus on, um you know, reducing, you know, driving, or, you know, maybe we need to need not be as, as consumptive, you know, everyone loves to recycle, but recycling isn't always used, you know, recycled material or the, the raw material, you know, the bottles you throw away or you recycle, they aren't always used. And some of that stuff isn't always, uh, you know, of quality, high enough quality to to be used. So it just gets tossed in the landfill, you know, already. And so when it comes to the reduce, reuse, recycle, the number one thing we say is reduce and recycle is always last. And so we should probably try and reduce what we use, you know, reuse what we have, and then ultimately still try and recycle, um, Things. And, you know, that's kind of where the innovation comes from. You see things that are like, oh, this was made from recycled tires or this was made from recycled uh, cans or bottles. And I think that stuff is great. And we should continuously innovate to try and be better at doing stuff. But ultimately, a, a pound of prevention wor- or an ounce of prevention is worth a, a pound of cure. And if we can try and uh, focus on our- are if we can reduce what we use, that allows us to focus our innovation on things to make a world a better place instead of keeping it from getting any worse. <laughs> um, I think that would be you know my preference, and I think is something we we have to start kind of thinking of.
0: Doing. Yeah, yeah, and you think we 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 have a good chance of doing it?
1: Yeah, I think we can. I think you know. I guess i'm more of an optimist when it comes to that stuff and i think we we are seeing people uh kind of shift back towards being more conscientious about the environment in terms of wildlife habitat conservation you know like for example the the biggest threat to wildlife is going to be the loss of habitat yes we we can talk about hunting um and with hunting you know the whole premise of it i guess in, in a scientific standpoint is there's going to be a portion of the population that's going to die every year, you know, maybe because there's not enough food or maybe because, you know, you know, for example, on average, 50% of, the, you know, the the nestlings die every year because within the first six months. And so the idea with hunting and sustainable hunting is, well, why don't we take the portion of the population that is going to die? Why don't we just have them, be taken from the population through hunting instead. And so those are small numbers compared to, you know, if we cut, if they lose, if, if habitat gets lost, whether, you know, it's because, you know, most likely development, right? You can't put animals back in a parking lot. And so um, I think sometimes you know, a lot of conversations kind of miss the forest for the trees and that habitat loss is going to be the biggest number one thing we have to kind of worry about. Um, And so that, you know, requires us to maybe think about how we build, should we be expanding out or should we building up? Should we, you know, various, various things like that. Um, But I think, I think it's possible. I think we just kind of got to get our act together at some point, which (laughs) Hopefully, that's starting to turn the other direction now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Matt, listen, it was a pleasure talking with you. Thanks a lot for that, and I appreciate your time.
1: Yeah, thanks, Tommy. Appreciate it.